Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumb Picks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number 114 with my guest from Toronto, but originally from the surprising musical mecca of Hamilton, Ontario, Mr. Colin Cripps. I hope you're doing all right out there. What's going on these days? Uh, We have a few shows left before we wrap up season five, and then we're going to take a bit of a break over the new year and uh, prep and produce the episodes for season six. So that's coming, and I don't know, that'll start probably in March, maybe April. We'll see how it goes. Things are getting busier, so I have to fit it in where I can, but that's that's the way it goes. I should mention that I'm going to be releasing three new albums next year starting in March and while they're finished I don't really have enough dough to print all the vinyl for them so I started a Kickstarter campaign to basically pre-sell the vinyl now if you're hearing this show on the day it comes out there's still one more day to pre-order some vinyl or some CDs from my web well actually from the Kickstarter website just head over to my site at stevedawson.ca and there's a link to the pre-order on the front page that takes you to Kickstarter and you can make a pledge there If I don't meet the goal, I don't press vinyl. So if you're interested, you want some, we do have a little ways to go still, but it's close. So please check it out. If you're listening a couple days later, you already missed it. Too bad. Before we get going, I would also like to thank, uh, we had one sponsor for the show this week. And again, thank you so much. Can't do it without you. Even as things are winding down, it still costs money to put this show together. And so thanks to Tom Hicks this week. All right, then today's guest. He's someone I've known for known of for a long time. I've not known him for a long time. I've actually never really met him in person before, um, especially as a Canadian musician working in the roots and Americana world. His name is Colin Cripps, and Colin is a connoisseur of tone, a connoisseur of guitars, a connoisseur of amps, and all kinds of cool stuff. What can I say? He's got a vibe. Now, for me, growing up on the West Coast in Vancouver, I wasn't as embroiled in the Ontario music scene as I got to be later on, and I was a bit young to see it, but there was this massive musical renaissance that came popping out of Hamilton, Ontario, which is a city about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. And that happened in the early 80s and continued for quite a while into the 90s, Um, Now, it's still going, of course, and there's a lot of music there. And a lot of my friends from Toronto have moved to Hamilton recently because it's cheaper. Although, from what I hear, not a hell of a lot cheaper anymore. Anyway, I digress. Now, a lot of that renaissance had to do with the emergence of Daniel Lanois as a superstar producer from that town there. But less famously, slightly, there was a whole cast of characters that came out of the woodwork there. And per capita, a hell of a lot of great ones. Producers, engineers, players that are world-class. Colin is one of those guys, although he's a little bit younger than some of the dudes in that main, that early sort of Hamilton scene. Mark Howard, Bill Dillon, amazing guitar player. Malcolm Byrne, who I've had on the show. Uh, Daniel's brother, Bob Lanois. They all became pretty well-known in the record-making world. And... um, Colin was around all of it, from hanging out as a youngster in guitar stores and setting them up with strings and guitars to playing in the band Crash Vegas that also featured Jocelyn Lanois, who's Daniel's sister. So Hamilton was a happening place, and weirdly, Brian Eno, I mean, not weirdly, 
But amazingly, I guess, Brian Eno ended up hanging up, hanging out in Hamilton to work on some really groundbreaking recordings with the Lanois brothers. And the success of that collaboration, uh, one of my favorite Eno records is, is Apollo. And that's the one that, um, or one of the ones that he did with Daniel there in Hamilton in the early 80s. Um, and uh, the success of that collaboration with Eno led to you know, them doing U2 and Bob Dylan and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it also led to a vibrant studio scene in Hamilton. And it also opened the doors to creative spaces and some attention from the whole worldwide community. And Colin got to see a lot of that firsthand. And I really wanted to hear about how that whole scene worked back in the day. And also about his studio in New Orleans, Lanois Studio, which is where uh, Colin recorded his debut with his band Crash Vegas. So anyway, we're going to talk about all that stuff. And since those days, Colin's become one of the most respected sidemen in Canada, producing and playing on records for the legendary Blue Rodeo, as well as Jim Cuddy's solo projects. And his work with Kathleen Edwards really reached new heights of musicality and tone as he sculpted some beautiful records with her. He plays with incredible taste and touch, and every time I've seen him live with any of those projects, Blue Rodeo or Kathleen Edwards. He always stands out in the best possible way. He's not flashy, but subtle and doing things on the guitar that you can really only do by developing over a lifetime of experience playing with, with different artists. Colin's also a bit of a gear fiend and collects vintage guitars and amps. And uh, also somewhat famously to a very small set of amp nerds, he also possesses the original Filmo sound amp made by the mysterious Bernie. And that amp has gone on to inspire dozens of clones and attempts at copies, but he has the Ridge and he knows all about it. So we had lots to talk about. And because of that, this episode is kind of long and it gets split into two parts. And the second part will come out a week from today. Colin has a website, but it doesn't seem to be super active, but he's pretty active on Instagram. So you can follow him there or on his website, colincrips.com, could be .ca, I can't remember. Anyway, without further ado, enjoy my part one of my conversation with Colin Cripps. So you live in Toronto now, originally you're a, ha you're a Hamilton native, and I wonder if maybe we should dive in and, and just talk about the, the Hamilton scene a little bit. Uh, both like, you know, you coming up as a youngster, you know, getting into music and playing in bands and stuff and eventually Crash Vegas, but you know, like how it's changed is really interesting to me, but also particularly like the crew of musicians that came in like in yeah. your in your age group, but then also the older the guys that are older than you, like Daniel Lanois and Bill Dylan and all those kind of guys, it's pretty remarkable. Um, so maybe yeah. you could just talk a little bit about the the scene going on there in Hamilton. Yeah, for sure. I I, I feel like I'm I'm I was fortunate enough to be right sort of in the right in the epicenter of uh, time wise of, of a lot yeah. of things converging in that. Yeah, sure. Why don't you first tell me about uh, just like you know growing up there, like. I know Hamilton, obviously. I've spent time there. I've done oh. gigs there, and I've stayed there, and I've made a couple records there, actually. But um, as far as what kind of a town it was, it's it's close to Toronto, but it's far enough away to feel like a totally separate city. Um, yeah. And just sort of what was going on for you and what kind of music you were into as a kid. Well, you know, everybody sort of sees, uh, and rightfully so, they see Hamilton as this kind of gritty steel town very working class, very, um, very much uh, a base around, uh, you know, the factories there, the steel companies and, uh, and other 
various factories. It was a real factory town. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up there, I, you know, I lived in a couple different parts of the city. And uh, when I, you know, I, I lived in a part of the city is called the North End, which is pretty much the, it was two things. It was pretty much the melting pot of all these ethnicities that had come from all over the place, you know, all different mm -hmm. parts of the world to have a better life, let's say, after the Second World War. So by the 50s and 60s, you know, and into the 70s when I was a kid, you know, all my friends were in my neighborhood were all from different you know, ethnicities, they were, you know, pretty much everything. And so, so musically, when I was first, you know, sort of, uh, you know, when I was first um, connected with anything, it was through, you know, a bunch of kids around my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, my first band was actually like a, a Ukrainian wedding band, you know, just because my friend played keyboards and, you know, and he had like, a, he had a Moog, uh, a mini Moog, but he also played accordion because it was, you know, yeah. it was a so my first band was literally playing with you know in a ukrainian wedding band and uh and uh like you and, played ukrainian weddings yeah yeah and okay. we would play you know we would play you know uh ukrainian songs which i didn't know any of them i would just learn stuff yeah. and then um from there you would go on to you know we do some you know we do some like rock covers and stuff like that and, yeah. but and, but the real thing about hamilton was that it it um it always felt like a working class environment and i think musically to speak musically about it you always i always was surrounded by people who listened to music in a say in a different way than white collar people would listen to music you know it was mm -hmm. it was grittier it was it was it was um it came out of the bars you know it was driven by the bar scene and yeah and 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 the clubs you know like uh, the legions and the so my early days especially uh, for for a long time actually uh, my early days were you know surrounded by playing in or with guys who had made their living in bars and clubs around hamilton and uh, the other big thing that happened for me was that i I started working in a music store in Hamilton when I was 14 and um, and that was truly my best sort of like education and, and meeting all different kinds of musicians and and uh, being like a sponge to soak up all of this. Uh, I was obsessed with guitar, but I didn't really know how to play it. You know, that, you know, it took time to, to learn, but I was lucky enough to get this job. Is that when you started when, when you were about 14? 14. Yeah. yeah. I started working, you know, in the store and then, and I, I saved up to buy, you know, I bought a Telecaster copy from them and made payments. And then I, and I literally, then I got a part-time job to pay it off. And, um, and I ended up working there for almost nine years off and on. And oh, wow. um, okay. so in those time, in those years, you know, they were sort of like this between 1976 and um, 1985, I guess you would say I was like completely you know, central to all this stuff that was going on in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and I was also learning how to play. And so I was, and I was influenced by all the guys who would come in. Some guys were country guys. Some guys were rock guys. Some guys were. These are like working, working musicians. Yeah, playing that was, that was the nature of where, you know, where music was in Hamilton. Like it was, it really was a great place to play because there were, but you're playing bars, you know, Right. there were 20 bars in the vicinity that you would play. And they were circuit bars where you'd play three or six nights. Yeah. And, you know, the classic, you know, uh, you know, three to four sets a night, 
And so I met all these musicians, guys who were starting out then too, guys who were, who went on to become notable and and have had great careers. But that you know, I was a you know sixteen year old kid meeting some of these guys who, as you mentioned, you know, they were from they were from the ten years before me. Mm-hmm. So when I met them, I was sixteen and they're in their mid twenties. Well, now they're they're still playing in a relatively you know sort of young situations and and. Uh, so that was that's really what what Hamilton represented for me when I started, you know, and okay. I was just fortunate because I was able to kind of, you know, I was able to meet a lot of guys through the store. And then those associations brought me to different styles of music and mm-hmm. some guys would come in. And, and then there was another thing that, you know, like my store, our store was, uh, you know, the one example was our store was um, right downtown. So. Uh, Hamilton Place, which was the kind of the main, you know, the main theater there. Um, in the 70s and early 80s, Hamilton Place, you know, all the all the touring bands that would come through Hamilton, you know, the guy might need guitar strings or something like that. So they would come into the store. And um, I remember, you know, I met I met sort of touring musicians from the US and uh, from Europe who were playing at Hamilton Place and they just started want to kill an hour. So they come in the store and, and, and a few of those guys, I actually, they ended up every time they came to play to Hamilton, they would come and see me in the store. And I, so I made some, you know, early friendships from that. Right. Right. Were you taking lessons at that time or were you just sort oh, of more soaking up? Music self, through? Just self-taught. Yeah. Just, just, you know, watching other guys and, and, um, you know, doing what people do, listen to records and yeah. Yeah over and over and figure out the, you know, figure out the, the, uh, the chord positions and the voicings and, you know, just kind of chip away. Were you selling stuff at the store or were you learning how to, how to set guitars up and do all, all that? that. Kind of yeah. Stuff? Okay. Yeah. I learned in the, you know, I started in the basement, sweeping the floor basically and worked my way up. That's how I worked my way upstairs. It's Classic. Just, but I, you know, and, uh, but yes, I did all of that and I, and I loved it. I still, I still love all that stuff, Steve. You know, I just, uh, I don't know why it just was just something I loved early on. And, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I would sort of set up guitars, you know, we get, I, I basically ran by the time I was 17 there, I was running the guitar department and I would, you know, so whatever inventory came in, I would, I would, you know, take them out of the boxes. I would set them up. I would make sure they were ready to go on yeah. to the racks and stuff. And, you know, and I, and I, it, I, you know, I was taking stuff apart just, that seemed to be something I, I still like to do. So, <laughs> so it was all very, very much part of that time at that store. I, I w- was really, you know, really deep seas for me. Right. The Hamilton group of people that's like, you know, gone on to make such a big impact on the world, like, you know, famously Daniel Lanois, but also his brother Bob was a mm. big part of what was going on at that Grant Avenue studio. Yep. And and the guy that a lot of people don't know of, Bill Dylan, who I think is one of the great guitar players that came out of that. He, he's older than you, I guess. I don't I don't know exactly how old you are, but yeah, I know those guys are like, a you know, a, a good 10, 15 years older than you probably, right? I would say Bill is nine years older than me. Okay. So yeah. were they, were they guys that you were, uh, aware of? In oh yeah. Town? yeah. Okay. And so what was the, like, what was their stature? Cause a lot of the, like they stayed in Hamilton for a while. Well, you know, the, yes. And here's what I can say about the, you know, if there's a chronology to the, how things evolved, I would say that there's a, to the, to the, um, uninformed, but know the names, but don't know how they're all connected. Essentially what happened was as 
you mentioned, you know, Daniel Lanois and his brother Bob, uh, who was Danny Lanois, you know, back then, yeah. was uh, they ran a studio in Hamilton called Grand Avenue Studios. They started it, and uh, it was an old house. Uh, basically, they converted to a studio that was just sort of, you know, about 10 minutes from downtown. And um, oh, I, th- I thought it was their their like childhood house. So it was a no, separate... they, they actually okay. well, they came from they came from Quebec when they, when when they were early teens. Okay. You know, the mother resettled in Ancaster, yeah. Ontario, which is basically just up the hill from Hamilton. And they settled there and and, um, and uh, she was a hairdresser. So she basically rented a she they had a house up in Ancaster. She used to do uh, hair in the basement. And then, then Bob and Dan set up the first, very first studio they set up was in the basement of the house in Ancaster. Okay. And they were just doing like you know basic recordings, and and uh, and then they moved down to Grand Avenue, and they basically converted an, uh, a sort of this Victorian house, mm-hmm. small Victorian house, into a, a a full recording studio. Yeah. And. Um, uh, and they would anything and everything came in through the door. You know, they did they did children's records. They did they did they did a lot uh, of children's com- records. Yeah, they did Rafi records and Dan yeah. produced and and they would do whatever came in the door. They had a group of house musicians. I'd say Dan would call, say, you know, I need this guy to play drums, and you know, they, they, you know, he had a stable of guys, and and one of those guys was was Bill Dylan. Okay, Bill was kind of like. You know, Bill was one of the recognized great guitar players in Hamilton, for sure. And he, but he was, you know, he had done some touring, I guess, with some, again, with like most guys back then played in cover bands, or if they were in original bands, it was a rare thing, because you really, you know, how many people do you know that had record deals in 1970, you know, 7, 78 Canada? It was, it wasn't as common. And you could make a half decent living being a, being a bar musician. Yes. Yeah. So they were, you know, so that's exactly why, you know, a lot of these great players played in, in bar bands because they were six night gigs. There was, you know, there was a hundred bars in Ontario. You could play a circuit over right. a year. I mean, it was, wasn't the best environment, environment necessarily, but you could make a good, pretty good living. So yeah. anyways, Bill was one of those guys. And um, so he used to get used on a lot of the stuff that Dan needed, like, you know, come in, I'm doing a, 30 second commercial spot and I needed, you know, I'll play some guitar, but I want your guitar. Cause Bill was more, and Bill was really versatile. Even then, you know, Bill could play a yeah. bit of pedal steel. Bill could play, he could play mandolin and, you know, he could, he was just a good enough broad palette player and he was a great guitar player. So, and, and was, was Dan at that point, was he considered a, a happening guitar player or was that something that. Oh yeah. Later? Okay. Well, Dan was in, you know, Dan was in a few bands in the 70s, especially like I remember him in one band when I was a kid, which was that he played with this guy named Ray Materic. And Ray Materic was a guy who was kind of in the mid to late 70s, you know, when the, the sort of coffee house folk singer boom was had already happened in America, let's say between the early to mid 70s. You know, you had guys like Don McLean and yeah. all these narrative singer songwriters that were kind of an outstretch of Dylan and, and like, were, you know, John Prine. And so there was, you know, there was, there was interest for sure in that. And this one guy, Ray Materic, who was a good songwriter, and he, and he wrote a couple hits. One of them's called Linda Put the Coffee On. <laughs> and uh, nice. and uh, so it was a, you know so it was like a Canadian AM radio hit. Well, his guitar player was Danny Lanois, right? And so Dan was definitely recognized as a, a as a player for sure. 
Um, there's actually videos of him from the you know late 70s playing it with Ray Materic. And um, and uh, so, but his I think his main focus then became the studio and then all the, he definitely was, you know, uh, you can see that he was moving towards a production uh, career and 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 having a studio life and and all of the things that went with that yeah. and not being a touring musician let's say right. so so anyway so Bill's part of his stable and there was a few other guys that were part of I think Dan's stable and uh, and and Bob and um, and that sort of fostered this work you know in Hamilton well obviously when Dan blew up in in success like fame which came about 1985. Yeah. But he started working with Brian Eno, I think, in 1982. In, in at, Hamilton, right? At Grand Avenue. Crazy. And the story I was always told was that basically uh, Dan was doing a lot of different types of records. He produced, like, literally, he produced, like, Raffi and The Spoons and... and uh, uh, Martha he, and the Muffins. And he had done a record... Uh, with the um, these two women who probably 1981 1982 kind of new wave I'm sure oh and he also did Martha and the Muffins so he put yeah. he got his put name on the map with Martha and the Muffins and then Parachute Club so he was starting to oh, yeah, buy Parachute Club two. he had a role going where he was like certainly getting recognized as a Canadian record producer but um, he did this record with these two really uh, I, I'm trying to remember their name. It may, may come to me. In the, and uh, that record got in the hands of Brian Eno. And he's like, who is this guy? Where is this place? I want to meet him. So and he crazy. apparently was looking for a place to sort of hide out too. You know, okay. he just wanted to go somewhere where nobody knew he was. And he could just be, kind of reinvent himself and be in this creative space where he literally could walk down the street and it would be like Hamilton's perfect for that. Hamilton, There's Ontario. No Nobody cares who you are. <laughs> so he ends up hearing about this record. Then he goes to Hamilton, meets Dan. They start this record series called the Ambient Series, which, you know, put out in the early 80s. Yeah. And uh, I have a few of them. There's, I think there's four of them, but he, uh, I have two of the, the four. And there's this beautiful experimental ambient style. I love those records. Instrumental records, yeah. So that kind of was the, that sort of set the precedent for their relationship as yeah. And, you know, Brian's the international star. Dan's the, you know, the, the creative, you know, young creative genius who's now got a springboard to the world, so to speak, through Brian. And then, of course, when U2 asks Brian to produce their record, which became The Unforgettable Fire, yeah. and Dan became part of that team and then obviously superseded in some ways Brian's role and went on. So by yeah. 85, it all just blows up, right? right? So then the next record I think that Dan did was Rob, Robbie Robertson's first solo record in 86. So when he put the band together for Robbie, he brought Bill Dylan. Right. And that's how Bill got springboarded okay. into that greater, you know, the yeah. greater realm of, of, of recognition. And then Dan also, Dan's, Dan's the catalyst to all these guys. And Dan brought, um, uh, you know, another guy's Dave Bottrell. I don't know if you know Dave Bottrell. Yeah. Dave Bottrell was brought in because he was an assistant at Grand Avenue. And when Dan started working with Peter Gabriel in 1987, he 
said, well, I got this kid, you know, he, this brilliant kid, I can bring him over to real world and he can be the, you know, help on the record. And that's how Amazing. Dave Oshel got. So I think, you know, I think if you, if you were to take all the people that you and I might know in that Hamilton, uh, let's say from my generation, from my period, you know, mid seventies to say mid eighties. Yep. Um, all those guys are essentially a springboarded through Dan. Right. And was Mark Howard and Malcolm Byrne, were they also Hamilton guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, wow. yes. And uh, well, Mark Howard was a Hamilton guy, uh-huh. uh, is a Hamilton guy. Um, he was from there. Um, well, uh, I think he was born in England, but he, his family came to Canada when he was a kid. Okay. But I knew, I, you know, I knew Mark when he was like 17, 18. And he was literally, again, he was one of Dan's like, you know, he started as one of like, you know, take those speakers and haul them over there and lift them up that stairs and stuff. You know, he was basically yeah. a flunky. Studio he, flunky. Was a, he was a studio flunky. And then, and Malcolm, uh, same thing. Well, Malcolm had had some success as a singer songwriter with this band called Boys Brigade. He was born in uh, Blind River, Ontario, which I don't know if you know about Blind River, but Blind no. River is a really strange place in Northern Ontario. <laughs> That's essentially like the, it's the epicenter of, of, science technology and um research in one of the places in the world where uh you know where where nuclear scientists and very highly you know academic people go to work on to do research for uh government projects and stuff so malcolm's father was one of those guys okay malcolm grew up in blind river then he moves to toronto to become a musician after he does Boys Brigade, he meets Dan, who by then is like, everybody wants to meet Dan. Mm-hmm. And he wants to get into making records. And uh, he was dating Dan's sister, Jocelyn. So moves to Hamilton. I worked with Malcolm really early on in him getting to Hamilton uh, because Dan set up a small studio that we called The Lab, which was this really small little industrial space um, that uh, so this would be about 1986, 87 now. So Dan's already famous, and he set up this place just to be as a workspace for musicians to come and play, work on songs, and and basically Malcolm ran it. You know, it was a little eight track Studer. Uh, so we had like an eight an eight track um, uh, Studer deck. This is a, like a, another house in Hamilton, or what? What is it? It was physically? like an industrial space that was yeah. like uh, you know it was like a, just a warehouse space, but you know completely vibed it out and converted it into this studio space. And uh, and subsequently, a lot of people worked there too, but because they put in, Dan put in great gear. He put in a beautiful eight track Studer and a BCM-10, a Neve BCM-10. So everything was really high, high quality, level. but very yeah. simple. Like here, here's eight channels. If you can't make this work, you don't <laughs> yeah. have anything, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing was like, make this work, and then we'll see, you know? So yeah, so the Malcolm started there, and we used to go in and do stuff all the time. Uh, just as, you know, as what, like what were, what were you doing musically at that time? What was your situation? Well, I had bands. I had been in, you know, I'd always had bands doing different things. I sort of recorded things here and there, but, but, uh, and I was also still going to university. So then by the time I got out of university, I was sort of like full steam ahead. I wanted to try and give it as much of a chance to, to have, uh, see if anything was going to happen. So I had songs that I'd been writing and, um, I had a couple of different bands with, uh, um, 
some people that eventually went on to do things as well in Hamilton and um, uh, Tom Wilson being one of them. And then yeah. uh, and, uh, my friend Dan Aiken. And, uh, so I was basically just trying to figure stuff out. I had done a stint uh, in 86, no, it was 80, 80, 86 and 87. I had done it uh, like an 11 month. When I finished university, I got offered a, a sort of first professional gig. I was a sideman in this in the spoons for about 11 months. Oh, okay. And they were popular. And I, oh, and uh, so it was a gig and I was like, okay, well, this is, this isn't entirely what I want to do musically, <laughs> but, but it was a step in getting somewhere, you know, into seeing if I, you know, if I had the goods to be able to, yeah. and, I, or, and if I really wanted to do it. So I spent 11 months on, on the road and, you know, toured all over the U S and Canada and, with them and um, I made made some good friends from that. Um. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The drummer in that band was, at the time, was Steve Kendry, who was, was a phenomenal drummer. So, you know, they, they had good players in their band. That helps. Yeah. So I did that for 11 months. And then after that, I started working with Malcolm and we just sort of like, we do stuff at the lab and, and that kind of, um, obviously I, I, I established a relationship with, um, with, uh, Jocelyn Lanois, Dan's sister, who was, um, who was, uh, Malcolm and her were a couple. Okay. And, uh, and, and then Jocelyn's the one that brought me to Crash Vegas, which was so, the first. So she already had Crash Vegas going at that time. Well, Crash Vegas was kind of like this seed. It had been sort of started for a few months, you know, and, and it was based in Toronto. So, and she lived in Hamilton, but um, based in Toronto. So at the time that I came in, you know, there was, there was, you know, there was like five songs on the docket and, you know, it was a, it was a seed, you know. Um, and, and Greg, Greg Keeler was in the band at that, at that time. Right? And Greg was in the band. Yeah. So when, when, when the band, so what happened was they had like five songs and Jocelyn said, well, you know, I'm in this new band and we want a guitar player, another guitar player. So will you come in and audition? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, sure. So I went, you know, came to Toronto and, um, I came in with, uh, well, they'd sent me a cassette tape of like three songs so I could just prep some parts, you know, just like, yep. you know, See what you come up with kind of thing so i did that and then i came in and it was greg and um, and michelle mcadory greg keeler michelle mcadory and then um and jocelyn and, and then this drummer um ambrose uh i came in and uh you know they just started playing this song and i just i think i brought in the two things that sort of 
two things that Greg to this day will say, like, you know, it was sealed the deal for me. Even before I played the note was, because at that point, I was, I was also a vintage junkie right from day one. So I, I always had good gear. I always looked for good stuff. And I came in with, um, I had a, a 65 AC30, Vox AC30. Nice. I had um, my um, a 67 Ricky 12, 360 12, which I still have. And uh, and a 58 Strat, just for the audition, right? And then the first song we did was like, I decided I'd come up with this whole 12-string guitar part. Well, I, you know, I got four notes, you know, four bars into the song, and I look over at Greg, and he's just like beaming ear to ear. So I knew I had the gig. Right. And that ended up being the start of my relationship with Greg, right? Okay. And, uh, and Which has uh, continued to this day. This day, yeah. Okay, so I, I do want to talk about the whole vintage guitar thing, but but sure. let, let, let's just keep talking about Crash Vegas for a minute. So at, at what point did you guys sign your record deal? Like the, the first record you actually did down in, in New Orleans at, at, at Lanois Place, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that experience? I'm fascinated with that place. You know, like obviously it holds sure. sort of some mythological importance to me as a yeah, Canadian absolutely. musician. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. To many of us, yeah. Well, so then again, you know, I mean, it's like, it's incredible how my, you know, there's a serendipitous line to what I feel my career. Uh, maybe everybody feels that about their careers, but so that, you know, that that serendipity of having connection to Greg and I and, and the band at the time and yeah. Joss. Obviously, everybody that was, you know, we got signed pretty much within about six months of our starting to write material together as a group. And we started doing some shows here and there because at that point, obviously, like Blue Rodeo um, was starting to, you know, get some ground for sure. Like their outskirts had been out for well over a year and they were playing bigger clubs and a few theaters here and there. So we would open shows for them. And then we ended up getting the same manager. Keeler was gone from Crash Vegas at this point. No, no, he was played with both bands. Oh, okay. okay. First year, he basically, it was him and I playing guitar. And then, yeah, so if we played a rodeo show, he'd play with us and then he would do okay. you know, their show. Double so, duty. Yeah. And so that, that carried on for about a year. Then we got a record deal with Warner Music in Canada, which was also Blue Rodeo's label. Um, so was was Crash Vegas like busily touring the country or were you not really that kind of a band? Not until our first record came out. So everything, okay. I, mean, I would say in relative terms, everything happened fairly quick in that we got our deal. You know, I joined the band in, you know, in, in mid-87. We had a record deal by uh, mid-88. We were in... Um, we started making our, our record in early 89 at the lab. We started there actually with Malcolm because the idea was that we didn't have a record producer, but we had these songs. And at that point, Malcolm had already moved to New Orleans to work with Dan as a more full-time assistant. Yeah. And he'd helped Dan make the, uh, two brilliant records. He'd helped Dan make um, uh, Time Out of Mind. Oh, Mercy, I think, right? Oh Mercy, sorry, the first yeah. one. He made Oh Mercy with him and and um and this uh Neville Brothers record called uh, Yellow Moon. Yeah. And you know, within a year and a half of going to New Orleans. So he's well entrenched in New Orleans now, Malcolm. And so we're now ready to make a record. He agreed to come up and say spend a week working on seeing what we got, and then he would decide whether he was gonna produce the record. So he was definitely on a big role, Malcolm. 
yep. again through the work with Dan and everybody. he was also a very talented guy. And uh, so we ended up doing some stuff at the lab and that turned into getting um, uh, getting the record started. And then we basically, we were the first band to record at Kingsway in New Orleans. So Dan had bought this basically a 10,000 square foot mansion in the, in the French quarter at Esplanade and um, Charters. Mm-hmm. It's right on the corner. Anybody yeah, ever goes, I've, I've, I've seen it. Esplanade and Charters, that's, uh, that's Dan's, Kings, that was Kingsway. And we literally were there, the paint was still drying. We, and so this was August of 1989. Okay. And we, we were the first band to record there. Uh, and Mark Howard had now become the house assistant engineer. So Dan had brought him down from Hamilton after having been kind of the, the studio grunt uh, yep. in Toronto and Hamilton. And then he took him, he actually worked on Oh Mercy as well. And um, so that's how the Canadian contingent ended up in New Orleans. So that studio then, so it was a mansion, but like, was it fully wired and stuff? Or did they just have like, was it wired cables running everywhere? And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, see, if you've been there in, you know, in August of 89, you know, it was well planned out, you know, like there was always a methodology to Dan's uh, setting things up. And obviously by that point, he'd done an, he'd done quite a bit of it. He'd already done, you know, he'd done it with U2, he'd done it with Dylan, he'd done it with Neville Brothers, he'd done it with all these others. So that you could basically park a console in a living room, right. run the cables wherever, you know, they would still always add vibe. It wasn't just, it wasn't like there wasn't a sense of in, importance to the vibe that was always, always, always there. You know, they would hang curtains in certain places just, just so that, that people felt um, that they were in a, in a space Mm -hmm. that they could be more creative or so Kingsway was like probably the perfect place for that. Right. Cause each room was all a big rooms. You know, we turned the red, we turned, I mean, they turned the, the, the dining room was this beautiful room and that became the console room, you know, the control room. But it, but you know, all that, there was no isolation. You know, they, they go like the hallway was right beside, like, you know, if you turned around, the hallway was there. And then the room across from there was like an instrument room and we could record anything in there. You record in the hallway, record on the stairs. How long did you guys spend there on that record? Well, we started in Hamilton. So by the time we got there, we probably, I was there for three and a half months. Holy shit. <laughs> when making a record, was so yeah. great. Making a record was like, you know, you're going to make your record in, uh, well, you'll get, you know, three months. And everybody's wow. like, okay, well, that seems normal, right? We'll record a song a day, you know, work four days a week, maybe take weekends off, be, you know, let the spirit, you know, the spirit, you know, come to you. Maybe you'll write a song or two down here. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, the way making records then, does it seem indulgent in today's sort of perspective? Maybe. Maybe everybody thinks that, you know, like it's a waste of my, I mean, I've made records certainly in that context where it, it, it was definitely a waste of time. You could have done the right. record <laughs> third the amount of time. Yeah. But indulged by the process or, in the case of having a certain t- producers, you know, that's just what you would, that's what you would have to accept, right? Were you guys given a sizable budget for your debut record or was it just sort of all done on a shoestring and you just managed to, to stretch it out to three and a half months? For the time, yeah, I'd say we got a pretty decent budget for Canadian okay. first, you know, first record. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they gave us 
but this may have included the first video because remember back then videos were a huge component to right to the formula right you make your record for and then you know so you had to sort of budget all out so and that shit's expensive too when you do it up even then they were you know like you're throwing i think they were 30 grand for a for a video and then so i think our budget was eighty thousand for the for the first video and the record which today is like you know i mean you know you and i make records for a third that amount i'm sure oh yeah and you know and that's the norm today right yeah yeah no, I don't like it, but that is the norm. But um, but at that back then, eighty grand would have been a would have been a respectable budget for a Canadian right. budget. And uh, we spent three and a half months in New Orleans. You know, I Amazing. lived there. I got to, you know, I was just uh, and that studio. You know, I uh, subsequently, you know, as it became kind of uh, one of the go-to places in the world, I used to go back there. You know, uh, uh, especially well, Bill moved to New Orleans at one point, and I used oh, to he did, visit, eh? okay. Yeah, he moved to New Orleans in the early '90s, and so I used to go to visit him. You know, he mm-hmm. lived around the corner from from uh, Kingsway, and um, on uh, Royal Street. And I used to go and so I'd go down there and spend a week and hang out. And my, you know, at one point, my gr- my girlfriend at the time was the studio manager at Kingsway. And, okay. You know, so I did get to spend time there over the the years that it evolved from being that very beginning, you know, idea to this sort of, as you know, I think a lot of people who knew it is like this sort of legendary uh, studio, right? Mm-hmm. So did you like as a musician, as a guitar player specifically, with that experience of being able to spend that kind of time on a record, were those early experiences for you instrumental in... Um, you know, developing the way that you approach playing on a, on a record? And were you given the freedom to experiment with sounds and textures and stuff like that? I would say Malcolm was a really, it was really influential to me that way. And okay. Bill was too, from a, from a player's approach. Cause I, cause Bill kind of became my mentor after, you know, after, but I met, really met Bill formally about 1987. And so mm-hmm. by that point he was, it had, had a name, you know, he'd, he'd done Robbie's record. He's working with, and then funny enough, you know, uh, uh, Bill ended up moving into my house in the late, uh, around 1990. And he still, you know, he, we lived together for two years in, uh, in Hamilton. So I have a long, long history with Bill and a lot of, uh, in, and, but he being you know, almost 10 years older, he was, he was a real mentor to me. Like I, I watched how he played. I, I learned so many techniques from him about how to approach guitar as a, as a, a voice, not just like you're the guitar player. And that really stuck with me. It still does. It's still part of the fabric of how I, I think about the instrument, you know, the possibilities where they're appropriate right Mm -hmm. and he was a big influence on that so so by the time I got to New Orleans you know that that and Malcolm having that sensibility too uh it was always about um performance and um does it speak in a way that um represents the song and your personality, you know, those things were really important. It wasn't just about, okay, get those licks perfect. Right. It's, you know, it was, it was, it's, it was, it was all those things that mattered to making people feel something. So. And it seems, it, it seems to me like your, your vibe too, you were as much influenced by like, you know, guitar players, but also, you know, more of the 
textural guys like The Edge, I know, was an influence yeah. for you, and Johnny Marr probably, and guys like that that were doing stuff that wasn't like lick-based guitar playing. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up with that because we. I think we all started, especially if you're are my age, you know, we all started listening to our heroes, you know, and you were like, okay, there's the, you know, there's the classic five British guys. And then there's, you know, then there's, there's guys, American players. And then you, and, and then there's the uh, sort of the outliers that you, you discover, you know, mm -hmm. I listened to everybody I thought might be worthy of um, some kind of education really as mm -hmm. much as inspiration for me. So, so yeah, so I definitely, by that point, especially being around guys like Bill, you know, I realized that I didn't want to just like, I never was going to be the best, you know, I loved tally players, you know, I love those players. And I especially like, I mean, I love Roy Buchanan was like one of my heroes when I was 17. I love that style of playing and I love the sound, but I realized like, I'm never going to be that great at that style because because I'm distracted by other things too you know it's like I I do love ambient style guitar players that don't have to be technically the best sort of who are, who are your favorites that would fall under that category well I would say from probably the period that I was like say early to late 80s it would yeah it would definitely have been the edge I saw you two the first time we played in Toronto I was 20 years old they were a buzz band, you know, it was like, oh, yeah. there were like 500 people. And to this day, that the, the simplicity of their gig, they had nothing. They just, it was just the four guys and his guitar tone and what he was doing, just, I was just like, I'd never heard anybody do it that way. You know, mm. it wasn't that it was difficult per se, Right. But the voicing and the signature was undeniable. And he was 20 years old. So, and I was 20 years old. So for me, that was like a real, like that was a real thing. It wasn't just because yeah. I, you know, I could listen to other guitar players who were older than me, you know, guys who were legendary players, Les Paul, all these guys were, you know, they were in their forties and fifties at that point, you know, so you're listening to guys that have been from a different generation of players and that. Yeah. This guy was my age and I'm like, how the, is he doing that? How did he come up with that way to do it and make it sound dimensional because he's the only guitar player? And that was also a big part for me too. I felt like I wanted to feel, and again, like the guys that I luckily, when I met Bill, for example, he was that kind of player too. Whereas like you did, you could play more dimensionally with, with the guitar and you could sort of, you could extract a bigger palette of sound out of basic chords or basic, you know, voicings. And I, and then Johnny Marr did the same thing for me, you know, Johnny Marr's a, you know, he was the classic arpeggiated style player, you know, but he's just basically not basically, but he's cleverly taking inversions and chord voicings and he's tying them all together into these musical parts and doing it so well that it became a stylistic um, approach. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely, I was influenced by those guys in that way. But I also still loved Cliff Gallup and Roy right. Buchanan. And I still loved the, the sort of classic, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Jimmy Bryant, you know, like guys who were so, you know, at such a level of playing that 
I still pull, I'm always try to pull that stuff in. That was definitely, I mean, I'd say in a nutshell, that is definitely part of the mutation of my, of my influence and my style and, and how I wanted to approach uh, the instrument in, in songs or in recording. And, and did you develop any, any sort of techniques for recording electric guitars early on that have stuck with you that would be unusual? Or was that, was the process for you guys at that stage more just like stick a mic in front of it and and get the get the interesting stuff coming out of your fingers and the instrument well you know it's good you ask that because i i didn't know anything you know i was i was really i was green as it gets i hadn't done a lot of recording and if i had it was always just like i didn't even i I was so worried about doing doing not screwing up the recording i didn't pay attention to the to the logistics, you know, yeah. but I was, again, I was fortunate. I can tell you this honest to God story. One time I was, you know, I was at Kingsway and Dan came and I was recording electric guitar on something. And I had been using AC thirties pretty much by that point, you know, that mm-hmm. I established that that was the sound I really gravitated to. And, and I had been working with the, with that, that tone and, and, uh, and I, you know, of course, Dan comes to visit and, and hang out. And I go, Dan, you know, we're doing some guitars. And he said, Can, you know, and I, I would never ask him anything because it was just, you know, it was just sort of like, um, I just didn't feel like I wanted to be imposing that way. But I, that one day I did. I said, Dan, you know, can I just, you know, because, you know, I never, never really told him that necessarily Edge was one of my heroes back then. And, and I said, but just, I said, like, the sounds you get on out of the AC-30, I just kept it on the ac Right. So the sound you get out of the AC-30, is there anything I should know? And I swear to God, Steve, he goes, this is what you got to do. And he goes over to the amp and he goes, you got to turn it up. <laughs> you just got to turn it up. And then he says, and then the rest is all in your hands. Yeah. So I realized like, there are certain, and this is a whole other thing, but to, to hopefully answer the question, it was, okay, the amp runs hot. That's always the thing. Yeah. Run it at the sweet spot, right? That's what we, I call it the sweet spot. Run the amp at the sweet spot and then figure out how to back it off tonally or uh, dynamically in the way that you either with the guitar volume or your hands, your, you know, and um, and uh, that was the you know that was the day that I just I've never forgotten that I went That's always cool, man. amp hot. Yeah. Now with AC thirties, it's a bit of a trouble. It's was a hard thing to do. That's a, that's a loud ass amp. It is a really loud amp. But the sound you get at two is like a nice sound. You know, it's like okay, yeah. you can get a nice guitar track and maybe add a little bit of some treatment to it to to bring it to a link. But it, you know, it's like every amp I own, you know, not to go off the topic, but pretty much every amp I own has a sweet spot. And if you hit it, if you put it at the sweet spot, everything just happens the more uh, that it, that you want it to. Mm-hmm. And then you just have to figure out how to, you know, harness that, harness that, or you, or it's relative, you know, okay. Yeah. Every Fender amp sounds great at five, you know, they just, everything kicks in at five. So you run it, but you know, so then maybe you can't use a twin at five. So you use a Princeton reverb or you use, you know, a champ or a, and it's just becomes a relative thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I learned that lesson from, 
that that among many but that's the one lesson i learned from dan about how to approach recording guitars to tracks and then i so i essentially have i i've never really changed from that but i just i just i run the amps hot and then i back everything to where the tone might make sense you know if it's mm -hmm. a clean sound or it's a but there's always a relative strength coming out of the amp if i want it where's a sweet spot on an ac30 is it more like it's six, like one, seven yeah so well an ac30 like zero let's say that if you've got the old style ones a zero is at like six o'clock right yeah where the pointer's at the bottom at six o'clock i say that's zero and then you basically got to go to 12 o'clock and then the sweet spots around one o'clock mm -hmm. maybe one just a little past one some are a little you know if they're originals you know if the pots aren't aren't changed you know but yeah. basically on all my on my 30s about one o'clock okay. um just past one o'clock and I, on a top boost channel which is kind of the only channel that most guys use the top boost channel in a in a classic ac30 and the one you know i was very fortunate years about 10 12 years ago well maybe more now but one of my good friends works for you too and i finally got to stand right in front of Edge's original AC30 that he's had since 1978. Wow. It's the number one. It's been, uh, you know, and it, it, it's literally the one he's had since day one. Or not day one, but, but that's his number one AC30. And I get to stand over it, and I looked at his, um, his settings and his volume. It's like 1 o'clock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the spot. I don't yeah. know. Have you used AC30s much? You know, that's the that's an app that I just don't know at all. Like I've I've yeah. just you know, just through you know gigging and touring and backlining, I, I always end up with fenders. And around my place, yeah. I've got some tweed and some blackface fenders, and yeah. I've just never. I like I like small amps, you know. Yeah. So an yeah. AC30 for me is just like I wouldn't really know how to deal with it. I, I feel like. Well, they are beasts, but you know I can't use them any. I'm lucky now in in Blue Rodeo that I, I'm still using my AC30 uh, and my original, the one I've had since 88, uh, okay. the, I still use that, but everything's ISO'd now. So, so, oh, okay. right. So there's no stage volume. My, my cabinets, I have the speakers, you know, in ISO boxes, 20 feet off the stage, right? Oh, Cause wow. we're, we're on ears. So I can run the amp. I can run it at one o'clock for tone. Okay. And, uh, but it's not, there's no volume. Yeah. So does an AC 15 follow suit in that way? Or yeah. does an AC 15 not have that same mojo? That it does. It does have the same mojo. Um, funny enough, you know, I have the, I have this, uh, I have an AC 15. Um, this just sounds phenomenal. Um, and I use that, uh, in, uh, I have this, uh, surf band that I use all the, all the, with, with champagne. With Champagne James, yeah, yeah, and and, and that all the recordings and uh, is that is that AC fifty? It's a Tex, uh, it's a Tex made EF eighty six uh, tribute to an AC fifteen, but it's essentially an AC fifteen. It's like and so yes, I would say if you're you know just for your own interest, if you don't you know if you don't want to go AC thirty, like a, a quality done AC fifteen will get you. Get you Oh yeah, they're a little bit toppier because the the old ones, the original, um, they uh, and the, a lot of the 
the good repros will have an EF86 as the first gain stage tube, which is a little bit bitier and mm-hmm. zingier than, say, a 12X7. So that tube, you know, it just gives you a little bit different top end, but still fantastic. Just fantastic. So, so what, but why would you still uh, lean towards an AC30 if... If you if volume is an issue, obviously in Blue Rodeo now, why not take an AC15 out? Well, I'm a diehard, right? I just like <laughs> diehard, right? So I um I uh because I have them and they I know that amp, those amps I have two AC30s that just sound phenomenal. So I'm very lucky that I can still use them, mm-hmm. and, and volume's not an issue uh, because it's all in here. So for me, it's just about the tone. Like okay. I, I know what those amps will do as far as the tone, yeah. And um, but if at some point the the you know the the transporting and all that stuff you know becomes an issue, then I probably would use the AC15. Okay, it does get you there. How's the effect for you, like as a hardcore guitar player that's played through, you know, nicely cranked AC30s all your life? Suddenly isolating that amp away from you and being on in-ears how's that experience for you oh it's 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 you know it's it's i've been doing it for 10 years now yep. and still struggle with it yeah i bet because, you know, i mean i don't know if your career has been a lot with in-ears but i find most guitar players like i love it for vocals i love it for timing you know mm-hmm. i love i love all of that stuff you know um, for guitar, I, I've, I, I think for certain things it works well. You can, you know, you can find these comfort zones to play. But generally, I find it really hard. I find it hard to solo with in ears because yeah. uh, it's too much proximity to my face. Yeah, I, you know, been, you know, we spent thirty five years playing guitar. The amps over here, you know, the, yeah, the sound- you feel it all around you and you can feel it but it is spatial too and as soon as you take that sound and you put it like right here you know in your face and and you're it becomes more uh, I feel I feel um almost in a weird way I feel more detached from it than connected to it yeah so I tend to pull an ear a lot for solos when I play because I need to hear and like I need to hear it and even though our monitor guy's trying to create it in my ears, you know, with like with room mics and stuff, it never. It doesn't really. It just doesn't yeah. do it, right? So, yeah. so that's where I struggle to this day. Greg Keeler has like serious hearing problem, right? Like, is yeah. that why you guys are so quiet on stage? Is that the the issue? Is that you just need to bring the volume down? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, like everybody's on in ears except for him. Oh. He plays acoustic guitar now. Basically, he doesn't play electric. Yeah. He plays acoustic, um, uh, uh, like a split DI to the house. And then he has like a blackface vibroverb that he uses, um, or vibrolux, sorry, uh, that he plays like the acoustic goes through some pedals. So he can play kind of like, you know, vibey Greg parts that, that sound colored. Okay. For an amp, but he doesn't, yeah. And, uh, but the rest of us are on ears basically. Basil yeah. plays on a thumper, you know, what I call him. Oh, thumper, yeah. You know, yeah. so his volume, he's still playing SVTs, but he's, but his volume is very, very quiet. So the thumper okay. kind of helps with the articulation and, uh, but yeah, that's the reason why it can, can happen. Cause otherwise the band probably wouldn't be able to play live the way that they certainly used to. 
he's he's sort of at that stage where it's like painful. Is that where where he's at? It, it got to that stage. Yeah, he's managed it really well in the okay. last. I'd say probably for the last five years. You know, he's been much much better. But he pretty much is constantly wearing ear protection now. But that and that's I think that's. Like he's much better than he was, but it's mm-hmm. still, it's just what it will be from now on. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was part one of my conversation with Colin Cripps. We'll be back one week from today with part two. Tune in then. We'll talk to you later. See ya. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.